0: Welcome to Episode 9 of Side Streets, a podcast about the history and geography of London. I'm Alan Hertz, Emeritus Professor of Humanities at Halt International Business School. Despite my accent, I've been prowling London and learning about its past for over 40 years. Side Streets is a Black Lab Media production, and my producer and editor is Wilhelm Schenk. Last time I considered the monument as a commemoration of the destruction of London in the Great Fire of 1666, and as an embodiment of the complex genius of one of my favorite Londoners, Robert Hooke. Even though it isn't the landmark it once was, the monument is probably still the most visible piece of public art in London. The two memorials I want to discuss this time are much easier to miss, in fact, I had to convene a small conference of Westminster Abbey volunteer guides to find them. But the two people they commemorate, Anne Bracegirdle and Anne Oldfield, were among the most visible Londoners of Robert Hooke's time. As befitted their celebrity, they were both buried in the nation's memory, as Westminster Abbey calls itself. But then their remains were scarcely marked and they have been almost completely forgotten. The early 18th century was an age of stupendous grave markers, mountains of marble, weeping angels, endless epitaphs, but the two Anns, like Robert Hooke himself, have only simple stones in the abbey floor, unobtrusive, unsentimental, and in the case of Bracegirdle, inaccurate. In this episode, I will speculate about the reasons for that relative neglect, was it something they did? Was it who they were? And try to compensate for it by describing and celebrating their achievements. Let's begin with the older one, Anne Bracekirtle. Very little is certain about her early life. She seems to have been born in Northampton, and her father may have been a coachman, her birth date is debated. She was baptized in 1671, but that inscrutable stone in the abbey would make her birth date 1663, while other sources give it as much as an improbable 10 years later. Let's guess that she was born shortly before she was baptized that is, in 1671. We don't know why, but Anne's family soon gave her up, and she was raised by Thomas and Mary Betterton, who had no children of their own. Mary, one of the first women on the English stage, was the granddaughter of Richard Burbage, the star of Shakespeare's Company. Thomas was not only the most important tragic actor of the late 17th century, famously playing Hamlet into his 70s, he was also an innovative, if not always successful, theater manager, introducing the French fashion of movable sets and making the Duke's Company and the Dorset Gardens Theater the center of fashionable London entertainment for a generation. Mary acted into the 1690s, so if Anne Bracegirdle was not quite born to the stage, she was certainly raised in the wings. If Anne was born in 1671, she was playing pages and other child roles before she was 10. And she was appearing in secondary parts when she was still in her teens. For about 20 years, from the late 1680s to 1707, she was one of the great stars of the English stage, celebrated for her charisma, her versatility, her wit. She played Ophelia, Desdemona, Cordelia, show with great success, but her specialty was creating new roles. All the great playwrights of the time wrote for her. She was the first Belinda in Vanbrugh's The Provoked Wife and the first Milliment in Congreve's The Way of the World. Successful actresses were public figures and subject to the same intrusive curiosity as other celebrities then as now. In the sexually frenetic theatrical milieu of the time, Anne Bracegirdle was an exception, even a provocation. Most actors were subjected to reams of salacious gossip in prose and often in poetry, but the Bettertons were an unimpeachably respectable married couple. Anne took her foster family's annoyingly unscandalous domestic life a stage further by remaining single, unattached, and apparently unseducible. Many men, even some of the wealthiest, highest-born, or most attractive men in London, did their best. The Earl of Burlington sent her a love letter accompanied by a gift of expensive china. Anyone who has read or seen Witcherly's The Country Wife will know what that meant. Anyone who hasn't can guess. Anne destroyed the letter to preserve the Earl's reputation and returned the China, saying that it must have been sent to her in error, since it was doubtless meant for his wife. Three of the greatest London men about town, the Lords Dorset, Devonshire, and Halifax, were so impressed by her resistance that they had a whip-round at the club and sent her a gift of 800 pounds, roughly what she might have made in two years from her acting. Congreve, who wrote roll after roll for her, was besotted. He and Anne were rumored to be lovers, even secretly married, but he confessed the truth in an elegant epigram Pious Belinda goes to prayers whene'er I ask the favor, yet the tender fool's in tears when she believes I'll leave her. Would I were free from this restraint, or else had power to win her. Would she could make of me a saint, or I of her a sinner. One startling story makes clear how extraordinary her position and reputation were. In sixteen ninety two, Captain Hill and Lord Mohan, two teenage gallants, as they were ironically called at the time, having had no luck with seduction, decided to try abduction. With a gang of hired thugs, they waylaid Anne as she returned home from a dinner party. She escaped, so the two would-be rapists ambushed her co-star of the moment, Will Mountfort, and killed him. Apparently, they confused the actor's stage relationship with reality. It is typical of the period and of Anne's skill at managing her image that a year later she was starring in The Player's Tragedy, a thinly disguised dramatization of the episode. Anne Bracegirdle's career came to a sudden and surprising end. In 1707, London's two chief theatrical companies merged, and this inevitably increased competition for leading roles. Anne agreed to a contest with Anne Oldfield, this episode's other leading lady. They would perform the same role on successive nights, and audiences would choose by acclamation who would get this and other plum parts in future. The contest was rigged in Anne Bracegirdle's favor. The part chosen was Mrs. Brittle in The Amorous Widow, which Betterton, her foster father, had written for her. But the audience preferred Oldfield, and Bracegirdle retired from the stage, performing only once more at the 1709 benefit for Betterton, who by then was mortally ill. She spent the next 40 years in respectable, prosperous, philanthropic retirement in a large house on the Strand, outliving not just the Bettertons, but Anne Oldfield as well. Anne Bracegirdle dominated the London stage for decades. Some of the greatest parts in English drama were written for her. Her offstage life was not literally beyond reproach. Many commentators questioned whether she could have been as pious, as chaste, as humanitarian as she seemed, but the reproaches seemed to have been undeserved. So why does her memorial in the Abbey say so little about her when others, less famous, less successful, less virtuous than she, get those gigantic confections of grief? Why has she slipped almost completely from the nation's memory? Before we try to answer those questions, let's look at the career of her rival and successor, Anne Oldfield. Our second aunt's origins are almost as obscure as those of our first. She was born in 1683. Her father was an unsuccessful London tavern keeper, and she was apparently soon put to work along with her mother as a seamstress. The story of her discovery is worthy of the Hollywood golden age. At the age of 16, she was working behind the bar in a West End tavern and was overheard reading a play out loud between customers. The eavesdropper was George Farquhar, a rising young playwright. He was so impressed that he introduced her to John Vanbrugh, who introduced her to Christopher Rich, manager of the Drury Lane Theater, who hired her. She was started at a generous 15 shillings per week, and her mother was employed as wardrobe mistress, perhaps as chaperone. Within a year or two, Vanbrugh was writing parts for her, and she was soon the rising star of Drury Lane. Her range was enormous. She was famous for mad scenes and for breeches parts, that is, when a female character disguises herself as a man or boy. Nicholas Rowe wrote Tragic Heroines for her, and a host of comic writers created what were known as Oldfield roles Giddy, witty, flirtatious society women. If Bracegirdle maintained an asexual independence even after she left the stage, Oldfield's strategy for coping with male attention was very different. By 1703, Oldfield was openly living with Arthur Mainwaring, with whom she had a child in 1709. Mainwaring was a typical, hardly distinguished London man about town, member of the Kit Kat Club, government placeman, occasional pamphleteer. What made him unusual was his relationship with Oldfield. This was a true partnership. Mainwaring wrote prologues and epilogues for her, acted as her manager, undoubtedly served as a buffer against other, more predatory men. But it was not merely a business arrangement. Oldfield apparently turned down an offer of £600 a year from the Duke of Bedford to stay with Mainwaring, who did not have that kind of money. She was under his protection until his death in 1712, and a couple of years after that found another protector, General Charles Churchill, the nephew of the Duke of Marlborough. They too had a son, and that relationship lasted until her death in 1730. Both children were publicly acknowledged by their parents, and indeed were heirs to Oldfield's considerable property on her death. These open arrangements apparently did not damage Oldfield's social position. She was a member of the Duchess of Marlborough's inner circle, and even seems to have given acting lessons to several very grand society ladies. Lord Harvey, the bane of Alexander Pope's existence, and the butt of much of his abusive wit, was a particular friend. Oldfield was a formidable West End presence. Anne Bracegirdle was not the only actress she dueled off the stage. Pope, Gay, Addison, Vanbrugh, Roe, all created roles for her. Several anecdotes illustrate her prominence. In 1711, She was offered a partnership and managerial responsibilities at the Drury Lane Theatre, but other partners were unwilling to share power with a woman. As the price of her retreat into the background, she negotiated a deal which made her the best-paid member of the company, probably the best-paid actor in London. After a few years, she bought herself a big house in Mayfair. Her new neighbors were dukes, earls, even bishops. It is significant, I think, that she did not share this house with General Churchill, who had his own nearby. She was an independent woman. In 1727, the provoked husband, a star vehicle for her created by Vanbrugh and Sibber, ran for a record 37 performances, outlasting even John Gay's Beggar's Opera. Maybe the high point of her career was her benefit night in 1729. The show was attended by the king, the queen, the prince of Wales, and most of the rest of the royal family, and Anne supposedly made 500 pounds. But 18 months later, she was dead. The funeral was a stupendous public occasion. A cavalcade of black coaches conveyed her to the abbey, where her body lay in state in the Jerusalem chamber. Her pallbearers were lords and cabinet ministers. At the time, protectionist laws required grave clothes to be made of English wool, but Oldfield asserted her independence even in death. According to her maid, who dressed her for the occasion, she was interred in very fine Brussels lace, a Holland shift, double ruffles of the same lace, and a pair of new kid gloves. Holland, incidentally, was a luxury linen imported from the Netherlands. Alexander Pope admiringly satirized the deathbed scene. Odious, in woolen, t'would a saint provoke, were the last words. That poor Narcissa spoke. No, let a charming chintz and Brussels lace wrap my cold limbs and shade my lifeless face. One would not sure be frightful when one's dead. And, Betty, give this cheek a little red. Oldfield was a megastar. But when General Churchill offered to commission and pay for her monument, the Dean of Westminster refused. We don't know why. She has only a small stone with her name and death date in the abbey floor at the base of Congreve's marbled grandiosity. So we return to my question about the other Anne, but maybe even more pressingly. Anne Oldfield died at the peak of her fame and popularity, she had not had decades to fade from notoriety. So why does the nation's memory not remember her magnificent life? Tragically cut short, more clear. When I began research for this episode, I thought I knew the answer. Sexism. Obviously. brace Bracegirdle and Anne Oldfield were neglected because they were female. There is some evidence for this hypothesis. Barton Booth, Oldfield's co-star in Addison's Cato, among other plays, died unexpectedly three years after she did, and has a monument the size of a small house. But a closer look made me wonder. Betterton doesn't have a monument, nor for that matter does Hook. Maybe even the irregularity of Anne Oldfield's personal life could explain her case. But Anne Bracegirdle was famously respectable and pious and full of good works. So was Betterton. So even if female unchastity was seen as a more serious disqualification than male unchastity, I could not see a pattern. I started looking at other possible explanations. For example, what about class? Betterton, Oldfield, and Bracegirdle all came from obscure backgrounds. Booth, on the other hand, was the son of the Dean of Bristol. But Hannah Pritchard, another famous actress, was given a charming, elegant monument when she died in 1768, and her background is so obscure that we don't even know who her parents were. So, here are my final thoughts. I've been naive, seeking for patterns in events which are largely contingent. How did you get a monument in Westminster Abbey in the 18th century? Burial in the Abbey was not enough. Someone had to be willing to pay for the design, creation, and installation of the structure. And the dean and chapter, that is, the Abbey clergy as a body, had to agree. Being a man may have helped, but some women got memorials simply because they lived in the neighborhood and worshipped in the abbey regularly. Others were well-born or well-connected. Some interesting features don't seem to have mattered much at all. Slave traders, smugglers, imperial thugs were not disqualified, nor were people tainted by sexual or financial scandal. I think the most important qualification was luck. Your mourners got permission for your monument simply because the dean had died well, a senior canon was a fan, or the daily chapter meeting had overrun. In other words, the nation's memory is like a real memory. Things are included and excluded, remembered or forgotten, by accident and what is true of the monuments of Westminster Abbey is I must never forget this true of history as a whole historical narratives are constructed from events which sometimes just happen or are linked by chains of causation that we will never be able to reconstruct Our explanations may be comforting, but they are not necessarily true. That's enough for now. Thanks again for listening. We're going to take a short break, but we hope to be back with a trailer for next season in December and a new episode in January. If you have enjoyed our first season, tell your friends, relatives, neighbors, workmates about it. They can listen to all nine episodes on our website, www.sidestreets.co.uk, and you can question, comment, criticize, praise, make suggestions for next season, even become a Patreon there too. This episode was researched, written, and presented by me, Alan Hertz, My producer and editor, to whom I am overwhelmingly grateful, is Wilma.